Mankind's journey into and through mortality was initiated by the freedom to choose. When the Israelites defied God and desired a king to rule them, God didn't rob them of their choice and gave them their best chance with Saul. Saul's own choices led to a betrayal of his calling, his people, and his God. A young shepherd boy named David was called up in his stead, and he too would have pivotal choices to make. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. In my life, I feel like I'm tempted by people or friends all the time on what to watch or what to dress like or what to play. And I know like for me, like sometimes it'll be like, oh, come on. My friends will be like, oh, come on, let's go watch this movie. And I'll be like, oh, well, I don't think that's like the best thing for me to do. It is easy to get stuck into the, the flow of things and into that mentality of kind of conforming with others because the world does reward that. That's the society that we live in today. However, as saints, I love the phrase that we are meant to be a peculiar people. And so we're supposed to share our light with others and develop that light so that we can help others see Christ in their lives. It's no joke when they call this the information age. I just think there's like a million different voices trying to pull us in different directions. And so there's kind of that constant pull we have to be aware of and fighting against if we don't want to end up going with it. So I think that's why it's so easy to kind of fall into popular opinions or what other people are kind of wanting you to do with your time and your priorities. Welcome everyone. Thank you for being here today. Our discussion topics come from our studies in 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 10, 13, and 15 through 18. And the first topic we're gonna discuss is learning from the rise and fall of Saul. And the second topic is the Lord looketh on the heart. And to help us with our discussion today, we wanna to welcome back our good friend, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. Good to be here, Ben. James is a writer and a historian. And seated next to James, we have our special guest, Elder Kim B. Clark. Welcome, Elder Clark. Thank you, good to be here. Elder Clark is an Emeritus General Authority 70 of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's also the former president of Brigham Young University, Idaho, the former commissioner of church education, and the former dean of the Harvard Business School. He presently is a professor at the BYU Marriott School of Business. All right, so let's get into our first topic, lessons from the rise and fall of Saul. James, you wanna give us a little context and uh, catch us up on the story? Yeah, so in chapter 8, there's a really difficult situation everybody's in that I think is one of those things that we can relate to. Okay. So you remember when Samuel was little, Eli was the priest, his sons were corrupt, weren't worthy, mm -hmm. and so God called Samuel to lead the people. Well, now Samuel's getting older, and his sons are trying to take over. And they're not as bad as Eli's sons, but they're not good. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 3, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. So there's a real problem that the children of Israel are facing. But instead of waiting for the Lord to call someone new or to fix things, they ask for something else. They come to Samuel and they say, look, we've looked around. Other nations have kings. Give us a king. We want a king too. And so that creates a real dilemma for Samuel when God's covenant people who are supposed to have God as their king are asking for a king like everybody else. 
Yeah, it, it, it happens today, even in our own lives. Because sometimes we decide, well, we're going to be our own prophet. Mm. But it also happens in, in nations. We can see it today all over the world. It's a, it's a desire to have a strong leader who will lead people into battle. And that's exactly what it says in verse 20 of, uh, of chapter 8 where they, they get all these reasons from Samuel why it's a bad idea to have a king. And then they say, we don't care. We want a king that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So I'd love to ask the audience, why do you think it is so tempting to want to be like everybody else sometimes? Yes, please. Dallin. I think it's so easy to start wanting to have everyone else think that we're really something that moment we start becoming prideful. And not prideful in the sense that I'm better than the rules, but prideful in the sense that I want to think of myself and I want everyone else to think of me as really something special. And that's where we start to do things to kind of people please and put those priorities of making other people think we're something special above following what God wants for us. So what does Dallin do to stay focused on what the Lord wants for you? I think you just have to turn to God pretty often, right? You know, daily scripture study and prayer to be thinking about what it is that God wants for me and putting that priority first so that I have that in my mind when I'm tempted to go astray. Do you feel like that temptation is pretty strong among your peers? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that's happening kind of on a regular basis. It's It's a steady drumbeat. And so I have to play, you know, God's music to keep pulling me in that direction. So I have that at the forefront of my mind. I love that. I love that playing God's music. Elder Clark, so have you seen a pattern in those that are really good at avoiding those things of the world? Yeah, and it's, you know, all you have to do is listen to President Nelson. Okay. The one thing he's taught that really, really resonates with me about keeping yourself free of that is daily repentance. Mm coupled with make time for the Lord every day. You can catch yourself. You know, when you start seeking after the world, it starts on a particular day where you get a temptation or a move in that direction. And if you're daily repenting, you catch it. You know, what have I done today or thought today I shouldn't be doing or thinking, oh, oh. And then you can stop and repent. So daily repentance is really powerful. I like that. I think, too, if we look at the direction they're headed of getting a king and being like the other nations, this is not just a story about God and Saul. This is a story about God and his people. And so Samuel is in this role of trying to establish where are the boundaries for a king okay. so that mm. they at least have time to learn to distinguish between a righteous king and a wicked king. And Saul crosses that boundary. There are sort of two key stories about Saul crossing that line. Okay. And the, the first, it can feel kind of simple to us, but they want to do a sacrifice before going to war. And Saul is waiting for Samuel, and Samuel is late. It's this sort of mm. test moment where it feels like God is giving him a choice to defer to the the prophet and priest or not. In this one, Saul was facing a Philistine army that was enormous. Might not be quite as enormous as the numbers in here, (laughs) but it was enormous, okay? And the people were leaving Saul. They They were running away. 
And he, he was afraid. And he, he kind of lost his way because he didn't trust the Lord. It's hard because it's not like when you think about, if you just isolate what Saul did, you can see, well, good for you for taking some initiative. We had a, a viewer question come in that kind of leads into this action of Saul. And I'd love to use that as a springboard to continue this conversation. Hi, my name is Jamal Karishi in Svalbard, Norway. My question comes from the lesson this week where King Saul had been commanded to completely destroy their enemies. But he held back, kept some of the spoils from the battle. He justified it saying that he was going to be sacrificing to the Lord, doing something else good, he said. So the question is, what are some of the ways where we try to justify not completely keeping the commandments? And how can we avoid that mentality? Okay, good. This is really interesting. There's two stories with Saul. Mm -hmm. So the first one we talked about, he sees the army coming, he gets scared. A good king should be resolute, have some faith in God and faith in his own calling and not panic when people start to leave, right? Saul panics and says he's more worried about what the people will think than about what God will think, okay. right? Which then leads into this second incident. So Israel's gone to war with Amalek, they're mm -hmm. old enemies, and Saul kills the regular people, but spares the best cattle and flocks. And he was told to kill everything. And he was told to kill everything okay. and spares the king. This story didn't make a ton of sense to me for a long time until I realized that pattern of what exactly, how did he break the commandment? And yes, he justifies it by saying, well, we were gonna sacrifice it to God, right? That's mm -hmm. what, no. When, <laughs> when Samuel pushes, Saul makes very clear, look, these people were fighting for me. I was scared mm. that if I don't let them loot something and take it home, they're okay. not gonna follow me. That second story is, is not just Saul making a minor mistake, it's showing where his compass is, where his anchor is. The king is afraid of the people, not leading the people toward the Lord. Yep, and we do that all the time, unfortunately. You know, like on keeping the Sabbath day mm -hmm. holy. We kind of say, well, you know, today's okay. The we ox do is in the mire today. Yeah, the ox is in the mire. We're going to do this. <laughs> and there are lots of ways in which we don't do what President Nelson has called us to do, is to keep commandments with exactness mm. and do it in a way that we have our whole heart in doing it because we know it's from the Lord and it will bring blessings to our family, to us. In chapter 15, verse 22, the Lord says to Saul through Samuel, and Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. I think for all of us, there are these moments where we could get something we wanted now by choosing to compromise. Okay. But the Lord knows that that path doesn't lead to the same place as if we can get on a trajectory of faith toward a higher state of being for us and those around us. So what are some things that you all do to try to avoid this justification that we see coming from Saul and keep the commandments with exactness? Kirsten. 
Yeah, so one of the ways that I think that we can keep the commandments with exactness is by deciding now that we are going to keep them before we have to make any big decisions that would put in, that into jeopardy. And one example of that that I had to go through when I was younger, I was involved in musical theater productions, and I decided that I was not going to perform on Sundays, and that was part of keeping the commandment of keeping the Sabbath day holy for me. And I was really excited about being a part of this one production. Even though they had a performance on Sunday, they said I could just miss that one and it, was, it would all be fine. But then the Sunday performance came around and they called me and they said, where are you? <laughs> You're supposed to be here. I had to rely on that decision that I had made years ago that I wasn't gonna go to that performance that day. And it made the directors a little bit upset and it was also really hard for me to do that. But I'm really glad that I did because it really strengthened my testimony of keeping the commandments. Thank you, Kirsten. I'm curious at that, the moment when they called, were you tempted to like, uh, I think it'd be okay if I go. And if so, how did you fight through that? I definitely was tempted, I'm gonna be honest, especially because I was young and I was really um, kind of enthralled with just being a part of a show. I relied on, honestly, the example of my parents. Mm. I'm really glad that they were there for me because then that also strengthened you know, my testimony and my resolve to keep the commandments as well. Thanks, Kristen. What a great example. Brother Clark, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Part of making decisions in advance is to create what I like to think of as the architecture of your life. What are the fixed commitments that you want to build into your life daily, weekly, monthly that provide the framework of your life? So it's things like daily scripture study and prayer, family prayer, being in the temple, serving in the church, ministering to the people you're called to minister to, and so forth. And, you, and you, I call them fixed commitments. And then comes the commandments. And some of them are, you know, we pay our tithing, we live the word of wisdom, we do the things that are in the temple recommend, interview questions, because we want to be in the temple. And those become the architecture of your life. So you never have to wake up in the morning and say, when was the last time I read my scriptures? Because you always get up at the same time and you read your scriptures every morning. Or when was the last time I was in the temple? Because you always have a set time you try to get to the temple if you live near a temple. And having that architecture is just like what Kirsten said, but in the larger frame of your life. And that makes keeping those commandments something that becomes the fabric of your daily life. You do it all the time. And then you get to work on the harder commandments, which are things like love everyone, forgive everyone. And those are harder. Mm -hmm. and, and, but you can work on them. And the Lord is so kind and patient. He'll help you all the way. But you've got to have that structure in your life so you aren't sort of being tossed to and fro by all the stuff that's out there. You just live your life, say, this is what I do. This is how I live my life. Well, thank you both. Thank you, audience, for your comments as well. This has been a great discussion on our first topic, learning from the rise and fall of Saul. I found it really interesting that the Lord looked into Saul's heart, and it made me think, if he were to look into my heart, what would he find? And I really hope that the Lord would see someone who is willing, willing to obey Him, willing to love Him, and willing to love others. That's what I hope He would see. I hope that He sees my love for Him because He is the reason that I am here today. He's the reason that I do everything 
in my life is because I love him. And so when I meet him someday, I hope that the first thing that he knows about me and he recognizes about me is that I have tremendous love from my Heavenly Father. So our next topic is the Lord looketh on the heart. So because of some of the choices that Saul made, uh, he's going to be replaced as king. And Samuel is again given this charge to find a new king. What sort of assumptions can we make about who Samuel was, well, what type of king Samuel was looking for? Yeah, I really love this story. This is one of my favorite stories. If you try to get in Samuel's head first, we read that he mourned for Saul, right? I mean, it, it really, he had, he had worked with him, mentored him, trusted him, and so there's a lot of pain. And I'm, I'm sure it doesn't say it, but I'd imagine that Samuel's kind of nervous about, can I find a new king who's, who's going to be faithful? Do you think Samuel felt a little at fault for the way that Saul turned out? Or was he fully in that mode of, look, you made your own choices. This is not on me. It's on you. I don't know about Samuel, but I know for us, right, mm -hmm. there's always that mix of like, it's hard to go through a difficult experience and not go back right. and, and analyze every decision you made along the way, yeah. right? Um, I think it's clear that he did know that Saul had made mistakes, but, but yeah, I'll bet he worried. Mm -hmm. And then in light of that worry, I'm sure he was anxious to find the right person. Right. So he's led to this little town called Bethlehem, <laughs> a little town of Bethlehem, right? And I imagine him feeling this great joy when he gets to a family in Bethlehem and sees his first potential candidate. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, Samuel the prophet has come to Jesse's family. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, that's the oldest son, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Mm. So Samuel, as soon as he sees this, this oldest son, tall, athletic, he, th he thinks he's found it. He's been led to this city, he's been led to this person, and then immediately the Spirit speaks to him. And it says, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so then Samuel, being reminded that it's not his vision, it's not his search, it's God's search, goes through child after child after child. And there's this interesting twist in verses 10 and 11. It says, again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. So Samuel keeps looking beyond what he thought, mm. and finally, in this obscure youngest son, David, finds the heart the Lord has seen. As we're talking about how the Lord does look on the heart, have you ever been in a situation where you may have perhaps looked at somebody first on their outward appearance, or maybe somebody judged you on your outward appearance. Uh, and then what was that process like when you really learned about their heart? Clara. I remember walking into one of my classes for my major, and I was trying to look for a study buddy because <laughs> the class is hard and I wanted to find someone. So I'm kind of like scanning the room and I see this girl and she's like very pretty. She's dressed very nicely, but she's seems very cocky. Mm. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to study with someone like that. 
But after waiting like three or four weeks into the semester, <laughs> I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just like send her an email. So I did. And she was like so nice right off the bat. And it was just not what I expected at all. And we've now been taking like similar classes. And I was in a class with her this semester too. And she is just such a great person. And I completely misjudged her at first. Clara, how do you think that experience can help you out as you continue through college and onto your other aspects of your life? I think remembering not to make assumptions mm -hmm. is a good place to start because there's a good chance that you don't know who they are or what's mm -hmm. going on in their life. So they may be putting up a front for a reason, and that might be why you can't see who they are at first. So you just have to have patience and get to know who they truly are. What are your thoughts on what was said by Clara? I haven't necessarily thought of that the same way. Usually when I think about this, I think about callings or, or mm -hmm. work relationships. But when I was just starting high school, I was in a sociology class my first year where we learned there are certain unwritten rules that guide society. And the teacher said, I want you to pick one and then break it. Okay. So the one my partner and I picked was you sit with people like you at lunch, right? And so then we spent about the next week, every day at lunch, sitting with other random people, <laughs> you know, and just seeing how they react. And sometimes people just ignore you and just talk and, and there's different reactions. Some of my best friends through high school were people I met through this wow. sociology That's experiment. <laughs> because when I sat down, they immediately acknowledged that I was there. They welcomed me. They asked my question. And these weren't people I think I would have found hmm. just on my own by looking at people who, who resembled me in different ways, right? But they were people who showed by their actions and by their hospitality that I wanted to be with them. Okay. And so I think sometimes if, if we give God the chance, he can show us something about people, but we don't always take that step to give him the chance. I love it. So David is called. What do we learn about his experience being called and what that does to him as a person? In ancient Israel, kingship, there's an ordinance, they anoint them as a king, okay. right? So in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, it says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So there's this experience where there's, there's an anointing that happened, the same way that now we might do a laying on of hands. Okay. And from the time he's called, there's an extra spiritual power that accompanies David before he ever gets to Goliath. Okay. Elder Clark, how do you see this process with, um, in your experience, what do you see happen to individuals who are given a calling and how, do the, how does the spirit affect them as a person and in their capacity doing the specific calling? We talk about the mantle. It comes from another Old Testament story about Elijah and Elisha. But in the church and God's kingdom, the mantle is real. When it talks about the spirit of the Lord came upon David, the reason it's in here is because you could see it. It's real. The Holy Ghost works changes in people. And there are gifts and blessings that come with that calling. It's true for all callings where that come under the keys of the priesthood where someone is set apart. You have that mantle that falls upon you. 
you ought to go look at President Nelson on Gospel Library in like 1984 or five, and then look at him now. He's a lot older, but that's not what you'll see. You'll see he's older, but what you really will see is he's the prophet. And, it's, and he's different. He was really great in 1984. It's a wonderful man, but he's different. Elder Oaks bore witness of this as well because Elder Oaks said, I've sat next to him for 34 years and he is a different man. And so it's real. The mantle that falls on, on us in those kind of callings is exactly what happened to David. And I'm glad you said that it can happen in any capacity. Any capacity. So I, I'd love to see some more examples of this. When have you seen the Spirit of the Lord fall upon somebody after they've been anointed or called to a specific assignment or calling? Suzanne. Yes, as my oldest son was preparing to serve his mission, he was a little worried uh, to go to a new country, to learn a new language, and you could see that worry in his face. And then when he got set apart, it was almost as if a physical weight had been lifted and absolute joy was in his eyes and in his face. You could see it. It was so different. Wow, that's a great example. Thank you, Suzanne. Other thoughts or comments? Kristen. I was a youth camp counselor for a church program. Based on the schedule, and it was like eight weeks in a row, having a different group of youth, like every single week, having no sleep and everything. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to have the energy for this. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this, remember their names, be able to spiritually uplift them. Like, there's no way. But as soon as the summer started and training happened, um, and I really had no sleep that whole summer, but somehow I felt rested the whole time, somehow remembered every youth's name every single week. And basically the energy and the strength that I don't have on a normal basis, I somehow had it for every single week for that many consecutive weeks in a row. It was as if it wasn't me. It was the spirit working through me. Why do you think the Lord chose to work through you in this assignment? I think that he used me as a tool to help mm. in those situations and in those experiences. Yeah, and I'm glad you say that. To, to, you're being used as a tool. David is being used as a tool to further the work of God. Thank you for your comment. Uh, there's plenty more to come in footnotes, so please, again, uh, stay tuned for that. This has been a great discussion on our second topic, The Lord Looketh on the Heart. I think this year when we're studying the Old Testament, it's so valuable to hear the perspectives of other people who have really dived deeply into the scriptures. They can make things come alive you may not have seen. They can give you a perspective you may not have had. It's really valuable. Even though I'm young, I still feel that the Old Testament applies to my life because it's what God um, told the people then and he's still wanting us to follow the commandments today now. What I'm most excited about learning this year in the Old Testament isn't necessarily learning deep doctrine or or mysteries, you know, hidden in the scriptures, but just to be reminded and remember, you know, those key principles of faith and hope and mercy. I, I, I think I have some of those, but I can always do better in those basic concepts. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. Uh, we want to welcome our new special guest, Ben Irwin. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much. So Ben, can you tell us about the, the program that you work with? Yeah, so the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a program called the Addiction Recovery Program. It's based off the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's adapted within the framework of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I am the program manager, and we have about 3,000 meetings worldwide every week in 30 countries. And they're free, they're confidential. People can go and get help with the addictive, compulsive behaviors they are struggling with. Do you have to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to participate? No, no. In fact, uh, we, we've started offering these meetings in several countries, specifically just open to the public, not specifically wow. church members, and wow. we found great success. Mm. I've had friends who've been involved in that program, and they said in addition to helping with the specific problems they came into, they feel like some of the most authentic spiritual experiences wow. they have, right? Because there's just this atmosphere of acceptance and where you can share your real story. It, it can be hard for us to be real about yeah. things, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, if you attend a meeting, it's like the Savior just pours a bucket of love <laughs> all over everyone. Because <laughs> I think he, he acknowledges, you know, what they're facing. He wants them to know how much he loves them and how much he's rooting for them. It's, it's a great experience. That's neat. So we're going to find the connection with, with your line of work specifically and, and what you do with how it relates to the story of David and Goliath. But before we get into that, let's talk about context. David and yep. Goliath, what is happening to kind of better help us understand how we can transition to the other things? So this is one of the most famous stories in the mm -hmm. Old Testament, right? Everybody talks about it in business and sports. It's, it just is part of our language. But if you try to get into the story, one thing I think you need to realize is that the Israelites and the Philistines had been fighting for a long time, and usually the Philistines were winning. So under Saul, they've come into conflict with the Philistines several times. And then after David's been anointed to someday become king, but while he's still a kid, right? I mean, what's a kid going to do about, against right? the Philistines, right? <laughs> Especially Goliath. Right. Because what we have here is two armies face to face, but they're not fighting. Goliath, who's this giant, will step out and shout this challenge to the Israelites and mock them, right? He's trying to defeat them psychologically okay. before the Philistines defeat them in a military way. And it says in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 17 in 1 Samuel, and the Philistine, that's Goliath, said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So he's successfully gotten in their heads yeah. because it's part of this bigger pattern, right? Where they just feel constantly defeated. Okay. And then it takes David who comes in actually just to drop off food for his brothers. <laughs> and um, here's this challenge and decides he has to respond to it and gets them to agree to let him come fight. He tries on armor first and it, it's weird to him. He doesn't do it. So he just gets some stones and his sling and walks up. And in verse 43, you get Goliath's response. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. So he's just laughing at him, right? But David says, And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And then I guess we know they go to fight. David takes his sling and one shot hits Goliath in the forehead, knocks him out. He's able to defeat this overwhelming foe. You know, in, in sports, we talk all the time about underdog stories. This is the ultimate. <laughs> I want to, let's just turn some time over you and just tell us the connections that we can make from this account. Sure. Well, I think we all have Goliath in our lives. Uh, and especially now, there's so many challenges with social emotional issues depression, anxiety, 
and especially with my experience, chiefly addiction, uh, whatever it may be, uh, one, of, one of the key takeaways I get from this is that we will all face Goliaths. Ho- hopefully just one, but maybe sometimes more. More often than not, it will be some type of issue with mental health. It impacts so many people in a variety of ways. And I really like what you said, James, about how Goliath kind of messed with their heads, Mm. undermined their confidence. That resonated with me. Whenever we deal with some type of emotional issue, it can really impact our confidence. It can, we can really get discouraged and afraid and you feel like you're facing a Goliath. I've got a friend who's dealing with some depression, right? And he said, some days he wakes up feeling like there's a bull sitting on his chest. So I think this idea of Goliath, the size of Goliath, that can feel really real for people. Well, and, and you try your best. Like you think, oh, I'm, you may not recognize it at first. Like, so I'm, I, maybe I don't have a lot of energy or I'm feeling kind of down. And I think, well, what's wrong with me? I'm doing all the things I should. You know, I'm eating right or I'm, I'm praying or I'm, you know, being faithful. Why can't I feel happy? And, and if we don't really recognize, uh, the first challenge with a, a mental issue is just recognizing for what it really is. You know, sometimes that we blame ourselves and, and we get down on ourselves, but it's something we, it's hard to control. It's hard to put your finger on it first. So, so. to kind of paint this picture of how overwhelming some of these things can be, because we face things sometimes where we're like, there is no way I can overcome this. And you look at David, and there's no way that this little guy should have any confidence going against that. So, like, what is David really up against? Right. I mean, the descriptions of Goliath are what, in like the eight-foot range, nine-foot, mm-hmm. if, if you convert cubits different ways. I think what it means is really big. Like, nobody had ever seen a guy this big, okay. right? And David's like a, a shepherd boy, mm-hmm. right? And so, so yeah, absolutely, it's a, it's a dramatic thing. The other thing I would say is, You look around the whole camp, all your heroes, all your big brothers, nobody is willing to face this challenge. People are nervous to talk real directly about this challenge, right? And I think... And it's not like anyone's encouraging David, hey, you got this, buddy, you can (laughs) go get him. I got your back. Like, he's all alone. I would imagine a lot of people, they have that same feeling of, I'm alone. What happens when they get that support? Oh, telling someone can mean all the difference. And, and it's, it takes a lot of courage. You, you, a lot of times you might be worried, oh, what are they gonna think about me? Mm. Are they gonna judge me? You know, am I gonna lose this, this relationship or whatever? And it takes a lot of courage to reach out for help. But once they do, having support can, can make a huge difference. But a point you said too, that really I think impacts this is, you know, the Israelites kept losing to the Philistines over and over again. And if I'm dealing with an, especially with an addiction, I've never met anyone with an addiction who doesn't try to stop at some point. They get it and they think, okay, I'm done. And they try to quit, but they struggle and it comes back. And then they try to quit again and they struggle and it comes back. And if you repeat that over and over, they think I am, this is hopeless. I, I will be a slave to the <laughs> Philistines for the rest of my life. And that, that can just crush someone's hope. It's really a dark place. And then they start to beat themselves up. They, they start to blame themselves. But when they reach out for help, that's, that's one of the first steps to really overcoming it, you know? Because when, if I risk, like I have depression or an addiction and I'm really nervous, but if I risk and I say, hey, I need help, I have this problem. And if I tell someone and they accept me and they reach out, they support me, they love me, 
then all of a sudden that is healing in and of itself because it goes totally counter to this voice inside my head that's telling me I'm broken, you know, I'm, I'm a waste of space. But so really being honest, it can, can uh, that's the first step people need to, to have the courage to take. I remember my wife and I talking early in our marriage about how do you raise kids who can be open and honest? And the first rule we came up with is reward honesty, right? Because it's scary to come forward. And so the yes. thing we've done, when our kids come tell us something that's hard to tell us, you shelve whatever disapproval, <laughs> right? We can get around to consequences. Like they know, you can see in their eyes that they know the first thing is, it took some bravery mm -hmm. to come to us, yeah. right? And you should be proud of yourself for taking that step independent of anything else. And if, if a parent or a loved one in that moment can maybe bite their tongue and say, Lord, help me not get mad and just say, thank you for coming and telling me this. I love you so much and I will walk arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with you and I'll help you however we can. That, saying that right at first is crucial. So I love that you, you and your wife you know, reward that open and honesty because, yeah, we want people to feel safe and comfortable reaching out for help. And I love the idea that just like with David, there's kind of two victories, right, mm -hmm. that you're aiming for. The ultimate one is, is this change in condition where David's able to beat Goliath and, and the Philistines. But the first victory is the psychological one, right? Mm -hmm. Because the terror hangs over everybody and he's got to step up and say, no, the battle is the Lord's. I'm going to stand here with confidence that we can get some help, that we can move forward. And, and that's a win in, a, in and of itself. Yeah. The, the 12 steps are sequential. And the first step is to be honest, admit that you have a problem. But the second step is to have hope to realize that there is a way that you can be restored to complete spiritual health, that the Savior can change your heart and heal you. That's the second step. And I think it's important, I, I, it's not by coincidence that it's the second step because people need that before they can do anything. David had to have hope. He had to have that faith that the Lord will help me defeat this, even if it defies all the odds. So how do you think David finds hope when the odds are so bad? <laughs> That's a great uh, question. I, I love the story because, um, you know, when, when he goes to Saul and asks permission, Saul's like, I don't know. But <laughs> he, in verse 34, And David said to Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after them and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. David had these experiences that as a young shepherd boy, I mean, he might have been complaining or saying, well, I had to defeat a bear or a lion, right? <laughs> I mean, we were like, oh, that was, that was maybe the challenge. But no, those were stepping stones for him in preparation for Goliath. And I think when I'm facing addiction, I can know that I've had all these experiences mm -hmm. and especially other people in my life that are there ready to help me. I just have to take that leap of faith to step out in the dark and ask for help and it'll, it'll be there, it'll be there. So how important do you find um, the ability to connect those with whom you work to their prior experiences and to draw strength from those experiences? When, when I'm trapped in an addiction or in some other mental illness like depression or anxiety, oftentimes I start to just think of myself as just that problem. You know, I, I just start to define myself like that. And no, we, we can't, we should not define ourselves like that. We, we're so much more than just this little sliver of our experience. 
And we really have to look at the big picture and remind ourselves of all the good that we are. When I have addiction, shame is always there. And shame is defined as, instead of saying that behavior is bad, I start to say I am bad. Mm. It's kind of redefining my, my personal value and that's one thing we really have to help them rework and stop believing in. Because when we watch, you know, you, you watch a show or a movie and you see a setting like that, the first thing I do is, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. But one significant difference within the church's program is we don't focus on, you know, addiction. We don't focus on the problem. We focus on the solution. And one way we do that is to really try to label or identify ourselves with our divine identity as a son or daughter of God. So when I go to a meeting, I'll say, hi, I'm Ben. I'm a son of God. And that shift is so important to really focus on who we really are and not define ourselves by our challenges or struggles. There's a quote that the Lord loves effort. Mm -hmm. And I think he looks at us and he knows how hard we're trying and fighting, especially against addiction or dealing and enduring well with mental health issues. And he knows, and he doesn't look at us like we're failing. He looks at us and I really think he's proud of us, especially when we try so hard because he loves effort. He knows how hard we're, we're fighting. And there's some really neat um, connections that we can make with the story of, of David and what he does to become successful over Goliath that we can use when we face our own individual Goliaths. David didn't have faith in himself. He had faith in God. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's a popular saying in, in, in the 12-step program, let go and let God. When I'm facing these challenges, I don't have to trust in myself. In fact, when I do trust in myself, that's when I'm gonna fail. Instead, if I trust in God and I put my faith in Him, but I do my part, I go as far as I can and I have faith that He will take me the rest of the way, that's when we can be successful. And that's what I think David demonstrated. He just knew, hey, I don't care who you, who you put in front of me, I have faith in God that He will help us be victorious. And the same applies to us. You know, it's interesting. Here we're celebrating the story of David, and David is victorious, mm -hmm. right? And yet you've mentioned that a lot of times in life, it's not one victory, right? Like the battle just keeps going. And yet, that's David's life too, right? Right? Like yeah. Goliath is one moment yes. where he's able to anchor in that higher power and get ahead. But then, I mean... Here he is with Saul later who should be supporting him and Saul ends up undermining him and trying to kill him and he goes into exile, right? Like David's whole life is this life of struggle and especially in, in 1 Samuel, right? This time before he becomes king, David's an interesting model of somebody who just, <laughs> there's always one more thing, right? Just when it seems like this is as bad as it gets, there's, there's one more thing. And so it's continuing cycles of learning to trust and hang in there and persevere. Well, and that's with addiction or mental health issues. I could win 10 battles throughout the day, but when I lose my one, that 11th battle, then all of a sudden I think, ah, you know, I have to start back from square mm -hmm. one or I'm worth, I focus on that one defeat and I don't give myself credit for all the victories I have had. And so analogy I like to use is, if we're going on a road trip to, to LA and we get a flat tire in St. George, do we have to then come back to Salt Lake and start all over again? No. Right. And so when, whenever we're trying, you know, all of our past victories, all of our past growth are not erased if we slip up. They aren't erased if we relapse. We can still have that momentum. We can still build because when, when I'm trying to overcome addiction or I'm dealing with a, an emotional issue, 
the most important thing is what direction am I facing? What direction am I heading in? Mm -hmm. Even if I have a, a problem, and that's another great lesson we can learn from David. So David, um, he has his little tool bag, if you want to <laughs> use an analogy like yeah. that. What can you tell us about the tools that somebody brings as they are trying to overcome their, the Goliaths in their lives? Yeah, well, because people try to overcome addiction or they try to deal with anxiety and depression so often and they, they fail, they really don't feel like they have anything. Mm -hmm. You know, they think, oh, I'm gonna empty out my pouch and there's gonna be nothing in it, but that's not the case. There's no real mystery. There's not like this secret thing. And that's oftentimes because they have tried and failed, we have really have to help them have that hope that it's not complicated. They just have to do some basic things. And uh, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. Just one little pebble from a, from a river can slay a Goliath. They just have to re-look at themselves, their divine worth, reach out, get support, and do these basic, simple things, like maybe go to a counselor, get, get, go to a meeting, do, do some basic things, and there's nothing magical. It's, it's these simple things that will really help mm -hmm. them in the long run. We just have to help them convince themselves of that because they've tried so hard and failed so often that they really, they really just feel discouraged. So in, in the church, we're taught those small, simple things. And the first things that come to our minds are where you read your scriptures, you say your prayers. I would imagine that there's a lot of frustration if people only do that and it doesn't always help. Are the basics that we're taught from the time we're primary, read your scriptures, say your prayers, are those the only things that we have to depend on when, when overcoming an addiction? And... How do you help somebody so, if it's not, if it's not working for them? I remember being in a Sunday school class once, right? And they said, what do you do when you feel discouraged? And people, yeah, read my scriptures, say yeah. my prayers, right? And I, I had to raise my hand and I said, well, the first thing I do is look for somebody to blame. <laughs> and the second thing I do is blame myself. Okay. And maybe after that, I reach out. So I think sometimes we need to recognize that like, we're human, mm. those can be very powerful tools. They're not always the first tool you reach for. Okay. Right, and maybe for some people, that's like that armor they tried to give David. It's not, you're not connected yet, yeah. right? My son, when he was struggling with some really powerful negative thoughts, he's, he's got obsessive compulsive disorder, okay. right? And so if he has a negative thought, it feels mm. very real, it feels true about him, he feels that shame, yeah. right? And so one of the different things we tried at one point was we got out a piece of bubble wrap and he got to go pop a bubble every time he noticed this is a stuck thought. Okay. This is the OCD talking, this isn't me, right? It was a physical reminder. So when we say small and simple things, sometimes it's bubble wrap, you know? <laughs> yeah. Addiction, mental issues, they are a spiritual. They impact us spiritually. Mm -hmm. And we absolutely need to keep praying. We need to keep reading our, we need to do those things in worship because we do feel the spirit, we do get help. Although sometimes our mental illness or addiction will actually block us from feeling the spirit and we may inadvertently say, well, I shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. No, no, we, we have to treat it spiritually. We have to keep worshiping. Those things are vital. However, it's not just a spiritual issue. It's also a physiological issue, an emotional issue. And I think this is a big mistake that sometimes inadvertently, unintentionally we make as members of the church. Okay. Because we're taught that the gospel has the answers to everything, and it does. 
and we try other things, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate the issues or challenges we face. While we still need to do spiritual things, we also need to do other things. Like I loved Elder Kapishka's talk on mental illness. Mm -hmm. And he said this, keep doing your spiritual things, but go see a counselor. Go, go do these things that you need to do. Because as we approach it, both spiritually, but also temporally, also, you know, we see a doctor, we see a therapist, maybe we take medication, we go to meetings, and then we still pray, we still worship. That is when we truly get the power that we need. If we only treat it spiritually, what happens is it robs us of faith. I will read my scriptures, I'll pray, I'll go talk to the bishop, I'll go to the temple, I'll partake of the sacrament. And when I do all these things, what happens? I feel the spirit. Mm -hmm. And I may tell myself, ah, I've done it. I've repented because I feel the spirit. I've, I've overcome this. And yet, no, the very next week, those same temptations or challenges come back. And I think, well, wait a second. I've done these things I'm supposed to do. What's wrong? And if we repeat that cycle, oftentimes then it robs me of faith. And I start to think, I know nothing's wrong with Heavenly Father. I know nothing's wrong with the gospel or the word of God. Something must be wrong with me. And I start to shame myself or beat myself up or start to lose faith that the Savior or God want to help me. And so it, I see many people fall into that trap. But once we explain, oh, you know, this is just part of your brain or this emotional regulation pattern or just this emotional thing, and they understand for what it really is, it restores hope. They think it's not just, it's not because I'm, you know, broken or I'm worthless. It's, it's because of this and yes, and it really is liberating. So I often encourage people to learn all they can about whatever challenge they're struggling with, whether it's OCD or addiction, because that knowledge really helps them set it in the proper perspective. A farmer, he was praying for crops, and the Brigham Young said, have you planted your field? And the farmer said, no, I haven't. And basically the principle was, well, you still have to plant your field and then you pray for the rain. And sometimes I think unintentionally, we think, oh, I can just pray or rely on the Lord to take away my depression or OC or addiction. And yet, no, we still have to do our part. But then the Lord will bless us with his grace and especially his mercy. With the story of David and Goliath, we see David slay Goliath. Is it always that easy to tell when somebody has slain a Goliath? No, especially with a, an addiction or emotional issue. You gotta keep it in the proper perspective because yeah, you'll, you'll face many battles, sometimes daily, and you'll win a lot of battles. Mm -hmm. But just because you've won a battle doesn't mean the war's over. David's fight was not with Goliath, right? It's, it's with the Philistines. Mm -hmm. It's to help Israel recognize that they're God's people and they should live a certain way. So, so that moment, right, you may have moments that are as recognizable as that, but that's not the end. And we find out that that was not the end for David. Yes. Just because he slew that Goliath, there were many more that came in his way. Yeah, he keeps looking. We talked a little bit about going to different resources, maybe finding a counselor, maybe finding loved ones and, and learning together to support each other. And most of the second half of 1 Samuel is kind of David going through that Saul's model of leadership. He tends to be afraid of people, but then try to exert control, mm. right? David, it comes much more naturally that he reaches out to people and they reach out to him, and he finds this real strength in positive relationships. If you're David in the struggle, who's your Jonathan? Right. Who's gonna say, I'm your friend, I covenant to help you. Our hearts are knit together, right? Who's your Michael who's gonna help you get out of a bad situation? Right. There's another story I love with a character I wish we knew better. Her name's Abigail. And the story here is that 
David's been living in exile. Saul is still after him. David doesn't want to act against Saul because Saul's the king. And he may be a bad king, but he was anointed by God. And David has respect for that independent of the conduct of the person in that office, which is a really admirable thing about David. So he's, he's been chased all around. And he and his close friends who are his fighters who hide in the caves with him have been kind of watching out for this one guy's flocks, right? Nabal. And the Nabal just tears into them, treats them horribly. And that's kind of the straw for David that about breaks him. And he's ready to go like burn this guy's house down. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, knows her husband made a mistake. And she comes out and talks David down, okay. that de-escalation mm. gets him out of the headspace he was in and helps him. And I love 1 Samuel 25, uh, starting in verse 32. This is David's response from having an intervention, okay. right? Somebody came into his <laughs> life and said, I, I see where you're headed and you don't want to go there. And it's not because you're a bad person. You're better than this, right? And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. He sees this person in his life as, as a gift from God. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. So he's able to recognize that, that all this struggle and all this anger needed an outlet, and he came really close to making a decision he'd regret. And he can recognize the blessing another person was in his life. Mm. I love that story. I think we need permission to just be human and be mortal, to have, have anger, to have issues, to have, I mean, uh, we, we have this lofty example to be like the Savior. And we're trying to be like him. But I think sometimes we go a little too far and we have to be perfect. You know, we don't give ourselves permission to, to deal, oh, I'm having a hard time calming my anger or de-escalating or, or I'm, I'm dealing with addiction or I have depression. And, and uh, the, more I, the more I'm a therapist, the more I hear and work with people, I just think we need to give ourselves permission just to be on this journey because mm. it's going to have all these issues and it's okay. In fact, it's supposed to be that way. We're supposed to have the Goliaths in our lives. That's, that's the whole point. Ben, thank you so much for being here and for sharing. And thank all of you for being with us today. Uh, we want to invite you that if you have felt any inkling or prompting from the Spirit, that you'll take courage and that you'll follow through and see where the Lord is trying to take you. Thanks again for watching. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.